0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. We've spent a lot of time on the podcast exploring how we can improve our skills in relationship with other people, including inside of our romantic relationships. But for many people, one of the most challenging parts of a relationship is getting into one in the first place. And to help us get a bit better at that and to be more successful when we do get there, I'm joined today by Logan Yuri. Logan is a behavioral scientist, an author, and a dating coach. After studying psychology at Harvard, she ran Google's behavioral science team. And she's currently the director of relationship science at the dating app Hinge, where she leads a research team dedicated to helping people find love. She's also the author of the wonderful book, How to Not Die Alone, which is how I found her work in the first place. So, Logan, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing?
1: Hi, so happy to be here. I'm doing great.
0: Yeah, I'm glad that you really took the time to do this today because we recorded a couple of episodes a few months ago dedicated to navigating the dating scene and getting into relationships, but both Rick and Mai's sort of background here is much more about how to navigate a relationship successfully once you're in it, as opposed to how to get into one in the first place. And I'm happily partnered. He's been married for many years, so we're not really in the dating scene. But my friends complain about it actually constantly, including talking about how hard it is to find the right person, find a good partner, all of that. And personally, I think that there have probably been challenges – forever as long as there has been a dating scene, but it does feel like there are some modern features of it that maybe make it particularly difficult for people. I'd like to start by just big framing question. Why is dating so hard these days for so many people?
1: Yeah, well, I'm super excited to be here with you and excited to share some of my research with your audience. And yes, there is so much interesting research on what to do when you're in a relationship and There's great information from the Gottmans on bids and trust and repair, but yes, how do you get into a relationship in the first place? That's what we're going to talk about today. So why is modern dating so hard? I can walk us through a few reasons. One is that dating as we know it is actually pretty new in the span of human history. And so dating in terms of one individual, finding another individual, that started in around 1890. There's a great book on this called The Labor of Love by Maura Weigel, where she describes Mm. the history of dating. And so dating in this concept is from around 1890. Then online dating started in around 1995 with Match.com. And then the apps have only been around for about a decade. And so just first of all, this is brand new. We are navigating something very, very new. And so if it feels challenging, that makes sense. Another thing is that in the past, our identities were defined for us. So for example, let's say I was a Jewish woman in Germany in 1820. I would know what to wear, how I would spend my time, what my diet was, how to raise my children. So many parts of my life would be defined for me, and I'd probably find my partner through my family or through a matchmaker. And now we have so much freedom to define our identities. And while that's very exciting and it means that we can explore things like intermittent fasting and wear any kind of clothing we want, it also means that there's a lot of pressure on us because you have this feeling of, I get to write my own story, but if I don't like the story that's written, it's my fault. And so there's tons of pressure. We Mm. also are told from everyone from Warren Buffett to Sheryl Sandberg, this is the most important decision you'll ever make, who you choose as a partner, who you choose as a teammate. And so there's all this pressure. We have to do it for ourselves without the help of friends or family or a matchmaker. We're living longer. So this is a relationship that we'll be in hopefully for a really long time. And it's no wonder that people are so lost. Add to that the fact that dating apps offer a lot of different options, more options than people ever encountered. And it's no wonder that dating right now feels so challenging.
0: Part of what I've read from you is that, just as you said, the whole idea of dating is a new concept, but also the whole idea of marrying for love at all is a pretty new idea. Marriage for most of human history was basically a combination business consideration slash cultural requirement of like bringing different kinds of groups together. And just the idea that you would identify somebody based on whether or not you actually like them and navigating that whole territory is very, very fresh for us.
1: Absolutely, yes. And so two people who've done great work on this, one is Stephanie Coons; She's written a book called Marriage, a History. And then all the work from Elan de Baton really talks about this. And so, yes, it is true that in the span of human history, people were mostly not marrying for love. Marriage was an economic institution. It was a marriage of convenience. And so maybe my parcel of land was next to your parcel of land. So our fathers would negotiate for us to get married. Or my father would give your father 12 camels in exchange for (laughs) you know my hand in marriage. And so it was really about making these connections that made sense for the family. Mm -hmm. It would have been ridiculous to marry for something as fleeting as love. There was still the concept of love and there have been love poems for a long time, but love was more something like a crush that you experienced when you had -hmm. feelings for the blacksmith in town. It was not something that you made such an important decision like marriage based on. And so Hmm. there around 1750, there was this idea of the age of romanticism. And so this was the ideology of the romantic poets and people talking about soulmates and one person for life and the effortless connection when you find your person. And so we're actually still in that age of romanticism where we think about this idea of when we find our person, it'll be perfect. But that's actually a pretty new idea and so if you were to say something to someone from let's say you know 600 years ago, "Oh, I haven't gotten married yet, I haven't fallen in love yet." They would laugh at you because there was no, you know, love was absolutely not a requirement for marriage.
0: Mm-hmm. Something that I ran into a little while ago that I really really liked. It was talking about actually the psychological challenges that people face these days and the feeling of existential dread and all of these questions that people are asking themselves about meaning and purpose. And we've gotten really, really good at meeting our baseline needs of various kinds. And it's the classic Maslow's hierarchy, right? The more you fulfill your needs at the bottom, the more you can progress to the top. So questions of like self-actualization, and I think that love and intimacy is actually really tied up in that. We're just not necessarily in the field for people who are asking really, really practical questions about survival. And now as we've addressed those in different ways or changed the culture— those other questions have kind of risen to the top of the pile. And so those are the ones that I think have vaguer answers for people about the way we should be with others or like what we should be looking for in somebody else if we're not just looking for a uh, convenient relationship with them.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. So one of my mentors is Eli Finkel. He's a relationship scientist at Northwestern, and he wrote the great book, The All or Nothing Marriage. And he and I worked yeah. on a video together using his research about the history of marriage. And This is his big concept is applying Maslow's hierarchy of needs to marriage. And exactly as we've been talking about saying in the beginning, you were marrying for security. And then over time, marriage actually moved up where at one point you were marrying for love. And now we are at this point, which is what he calls the all or nothing marriage, where you are marrying for self-actualization. And so Mm. the best marriages today are better than most marriages throughout history, but people are also getting divorced for reasons that your grandparents would have laughed at. And it would be like, what? In what world Like, is your partner expected to help you self-actualize? You're just trying to like raise a family and get through life together. And yeah. so yes, we have really high expectations of marriage now, which means some marriages are pushed to an even better place, but a lot mm. of marriages fail for reasons that we just wouldn't have considered grounds for divorce in the past.
0: Mm. Yeah. No, I think this is a great, framework for everything and apply some really, really good context. And another thing that I like about your work is how you frame a lot of it through the context of our biases. One of the core arguments that you make broadly is that we all have blind spots and we all have tendencies for how we approach not just our dating life, but the way that we think about relationships altogether. And you group these blind spots into three big families of tendencies that people tend to have inside of their relationships. And one of them absolutely gets to what we were just saying about like, I I just didn't feel a deep enough sense of love and romance inside of this relationship. You call that the romanticizer. Then there are these two others, the maximizer and the hesitator. And I would love it if we could get a quick explanation of each one from you.
1: Yeah. So each of them has to do with unrealistic expectations. This is a framework I put together from working with clients of all different ages from around the world. And I was like, all right, there's something going on. They all share this. And so mm. as you explained, the romanticizer, they love, love, they really believe in the soulmate and their view is I'll know it when I see it. And if I get into relationship and it feels really hard, oh, well, this must not be my person because if it were my person, it would be effortless.
0: Mm. Hmm.
1: The second type is the maximizer and the maximizer has unrealistic expectations of their partner. And so they love research and they feel like if I just keep swiping, keep looking for the next person, the perfect person will appear. And so they really believe that there is a so-called perfect person out there. And if they just research their way to that answer, then they'll find it. And of course, the issue is there is no such thing as a perfect person. It's really about finding someone great and then investing in the relationship. And then finally, the hesitator, of which there have been many during the pandemic, the hesitator has unrealistic expectations of themselves. And this is the Mm. one who's saying, I'm not lovable yet. I'm just not ready. I'll date when I'm 100% ready. And they have a story in their head that one day they'll wake up. And uh, at that point, you know, when they lose 10 pounds, when they get a more impressive job, when they have more money in the bank, then I'll be ready to date. And of course, the only way to get better at dating is by dating And the only way to figure out who you want to be with is by going on dates and trying out different people. And so for the hesitator, Mm -hmm. the work is really to understand that they should get out there and no one's ever 100% ready for anything.
0: Certainly inside of my friend group, I see a ton of romanticizing tendencies. As exactly zero people who listen to this podcast will be at all surprised by, (laughs) I probably lean a little bit more toward like the hesitator maximizer side of the spectrum than toward the romanticizer side of the spectrum. And I would love it if for each of these, maybe starting with romanticizer, because again, I think that that's a really common one. What are some of the the antidotes? I don't know a better way to frame it than that, but I hope you know what I mean.
1: Reframes, yeah.
0: Yeah, the reframes. Sure.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I would say, so in terms of the population of people that I've worked with as a dating coach, I definitely see the most maximizers. Mm. I would say the maximizer is the type that's most likely to pursue self-help because there's Mm. really a feeling of... Oh, life is something that I can optimize. I can educate myself. You know, if I was trying to lose weight, I would get a nutritionist. If I was trying to work out more, I'd get a trainer. There's really a sense of like going to experts and trying to get better. Problem solving. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot, you know, there was a tendency towards seeing a lot of maximizers. But now that my book's been out for a year and thousands of people have taken the quiz on my website, I'm seeing a lot more hesitators and many people who, you know, wouldn't have probably sought me out for advice because they're not currently dating, but a lot of people who identify as a hesitator. And so anyway, just wanted to say that I actually probably see yeah. the most of a maximizer in terms of the antidote. So for the romanticizer, those conversations that I have with people one on one are so interesting because I'll say to them like, Hey, like I know that you have this vision in your head of what your person's going to look like, but. I want you to be more open-minded and I know you want to meet your person at the farmer's market and you think that dating apps are unromantic, but the majority of people these days are meeting online and so I want you to try dating apps and saying, Mm -hmm. I know you want to date a guy who's over six feet tall, but only 14% of the U.S men are over six feet tall. And so I want you to be more open-minded about that. And that's usually when they start crying Mm. and they say, why are you (laughs) giving up on me? And why are you telling me that I can't have my epic love story? And why do I have to settle? I say to them, it's not about settling. It's about compromising on the things that don't matter and doubling down on the things that do. Mm. And so for them, I think they're really caught up in the we met story. They really want this romantic meet cute and they want to be able to tell you know, their grandkids, oh, we were sitting on a plane and we switched seats and suddenly we're together. They say like, if you are married for 50 years, the day you met is 0.0055% of your total relationship. It just doesn't matter. And who cares in the end what the person looks like as long as you're attracted to them. And so really helping them unpack what baggage are they bringing? This baggage of they need to look a certain way. We need to meet a certain way. Relationships are supposed to be easy and actually have a reframe that's like, no, if it's hard, you're doing it right because it requires Mm. a lot of effort and life is complicated and you go through ups and downs. And so really reframing what's romantic is staying together, sticking together, being by each other's side, getting through ups and downs, not just like, oh, it's so effortless from the beginning.
0: A moment ago, you just said something that I want to spend a minute here, and then we can return sure. to the the primary tendencies where you said, rephrase it, you essentially said valuing the things that actually matter more and valuing mm-hmm. the things that don't really matter very much less. You've worked with a lot of people, as you were saying a second ago. What do you think the things are that people tend to overestimate the importance of the most?
1: Yeah, it's funny. People aren't always honest about what they care about, but then when you really are with them and they're swiping or you see who they say no to, it becomes clear. And so this is what we call, you know, stated versus revealed preferences. They might state, oh, I'm really looking for someone who has good values. But then when they are going through an app, it's really about who's hot. And so the things that people value more than research says matter very much for long-term relationship success are things like looks, money, having similar personalities, and having shared hobbies. And so, yes, of course, you want to be attracted to the person and money does make things easier, but there's this concept of adaptation where we really get used to things over time. And so even if someone is super attractive or super wealthy, you'll over time adapt to that and you'll no longer appreciate as much. And then similar personalities, it's helpful in some ways to be similar, but oftentimes opposites attract and people compliment each other. And in terms of shared hobbies, people often focus way too much on I love wine and she doesn't drink, this could never work. And it's like, as long as she doesn't begrudge you for liking wine, it's completely fine that you have different hobbies.
0: It sounds like you're making a great distinction between what I'll call a values-based relationship versus an activities-based relationship, where there are so many people who essentially fall into a relationship because they happen to share a hobby with a person. And to give a very practical example of this, I dance as a serious hobby. And so before the pandemic, I was going to various dance conventions and doing competitive stuff, and I actually bumped into my current partner because we met at a dance thing. Almost all of my friends were involved in that world in various <laughs> ways. It was, it's a very serious hobby that I do for fun, all of that good stuff. Then the pandemic happens, right? Dancing goes away. And all of a sudden, all of these relationships start changing, right? And of course, the pandemic has a lot to do with that in a lot of different ways, a lot of pressure on relationships, very understandable. But for, I think, a lot of people, there was this feeling that what they did together was the dancing. That was the basis mm-hmm. of their relationship. Mm-hmm. And then when the dancing was removed, when the shared activity was no longer there, what are we really? What are our shared values? And people uh, really had the rug pulled out from under them, I think, a lot. And a lot of like revelations were made inside of partnerships that we actually had an activities-based partnership and not a values-based partnership. And thankfully, with my partner and I, at least so far, it turns out we had a values-based partnership. There was stuff that was going on for us other than the activity that we happened to be doing together.
1: I love that example. And I'm very Hmm. fascinated by pandemic relationships. I was certainly helping people in the first six months of the pandemic who were like, well, I've been you know, engaged to this guy and he's a consultant and we used to spend weekends together, but we had never really lived together for weeks at a time. And turns out we have nothing in common and we don't enjoy each other's company. And now we're going to end the engagement. And so there was lots of Hmm. people who, when you stripped away all the parts of life, whether it was travel or somebody else's work, or in your case, dancing, you really had to look at the relationship as it is and say, is this the right partnership for me? Yeah. And too often people think that something I actually use the example in my book of salsa dancing, where if someone's really into salsa, they're like, oh, I need to find a person that also does this. It's like, okay, unless you are super into this hobby, which it sounds like you might actually be the exception to this. It's like, (laughs) how often are you doing this? Like five to 10 hours a month? Like that's such a small percentage of your life. Go have your friends that you dance with and you can have a partner that does something else. And so I think people get really wrapped up in things like my identity is loving wine. My identity is being a dancer. I need to find someone who shares this. And actually, you and your partner can have pretty different hobbies as long as you are respectful about the other person's hobby and you don't have them come home and you say, hey, like, why are you drinking so much? Or why were you out dancing so late? Like, as long as you give them room to have separate hobbies, it's absolutely fine.
0: We actually moved in together, me and my partner, Elizabeth, at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was our That's first so time nice. ever living together. Yeah. And, It changed a lot of relationships and I would love your take on this, but it seems like it made some of them a lot better and some of them a lot worse. That everyone either went one direction or the Mm -hmm. other and nobody really stayed the same. For us, it really improved our relationship. But I think that a lot of people had the opposite experience.
1: Yeah, I've heard all types of stories. So I've heard stories Mm. of people who had been casually dating for a few months before the pandemic, moved in because it just made sense, and now they are engaged or super happy. And they're like, yeah, it was basically like time was three times as intense it would, as it would normally be. We went through hard things together. We realized we were a great match. And now we're so glad that we had this intense experience. And so for some people, they had this turbo relationship and that worked out well. For other people, it basically, as I was saying, took away the distractions and all they had was each other and they realized they just weren't the right match. And so it was like, Whether you were meant to be together or not, it really exacerbated what was going on. And I think people got to the answer for themselves sooner than they would have otherwise.
0: So returning to your three big character types, we've explored the romanticizer a little bit. I would love to talk about the maximizer and the hesitator, and particularly, again, what people who have these tendencies can do to push back on them.
1: Yeah, so I have worked with many maximizers, and they are fun because They're open-minded and they are willing to put effort in and they want to get as much information as possible, but they really are focused on this idea of there's a perfect person and I have a spreadsheet and I want to take the best of my ex and then add it to my current partner and then find a future partner that has this. And there's this concept of, okay, so someone who's just 5% hotter and 10% more ambitious and they're they're trying to create this Frankenstein perfect partner and they really believe that there's someone out there and that they just have to keep looking. And so what I try to tell them is that you likely have already dated somebody who would have made a great partner. Mm. And what we need to do is next time that you find someone who's great, invest in them, invest in the relationship and build the partnership you want, as opposed to assuming that when the perfect person comes along, that perfect relationship will just naturally emerge and really shifting the effort from the finding to the building.
0: Mm. You have a great idea in the book that I really liked that actually kind of blew my mind a little bit because I just never thought about it this way. The idea of finding a benchmark person, would you mind explaining that? It kind of relates to what you were just saying.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so this is a concept that I came upon in the book called Algorithms to Live By. And so there's this concept called the secretary problem. And the idea is that imagine that you're hiring some sort of admin and you can go through 100 possible candidates. You know that there's a total of 100 people. And you have to say yes or no after each one. And so the question here is how many should you interview before you choose someone? Yeah, because you you can't
0: go back, yeah.
1: You can't go back, yeah. You have to say yes or no after each one and you can't go back. So if you wait too long, maybe all the good people will have passed. And also it took time to interview all those people. If you choose someone too quickly, well, maybe you didn't know what was out there. And so the mathematically correct solution as part of this problem is that you go through a third of the candidates. You go through 33 Mm. of the candidates and you say, who was the single best person from the first third? That person is now your benchmark. The next time you find a candidate who you like as much or more than that person, you choose them because you have a sense of who is out there and then you grab the next person like that. So in dating, you'll never know, oh, I'm gonna date 100 people. But what you could approximate, and this is what they do in the book, is let's say I'm gonna date from 18 to 40 What would be 33% of that in years? It's when you're 26.1 years old. That's around (laughs) 33% of the time. I know this is very exact, but it's more metaphorical. Yeah, And so it's like, by the time you're 26, you've probably already dated somebody great. And so that person is your benchmark. And the next time that you find someone who you like as much or more than that benchmark, commit to them. And when people hear this, first of all, they get very caught up in the numbers and they're like, I'm way older than 26. I'm way too late. And I'm like, no, it's not exact. It's about the concept that you've likely already met someone great. That instead of keep searching and searching and searching, and then suddenly all these amazing people have passed you by, it's actually understanding that you probably have a sense of what's out there and that you should find someone great and really build with them and not find someone great and say, well, they're great. Who's someone who's even greater?
0: I think that a a normal response that somebody might have when when listening to you say that, which is obviously like a very logical, broken down way of thinking about it, that certainly appeals to me, um, because I'm a logical, think it through kind of person. But for somebody else listening, one of the responses might be, well, honestly, I don't really feel like I've met somebody that mm-hmm. great, or maybe we're leaning more into that maximizer, like I just want to find the person with the perfect trait breakdown. But I think that particularly, and I don't want to speak out of pocket here, obviously I'm a I'm a straight white guy, and so that's going to color my experiences. But I think that particularly for a lot of my female friends, I've heard them say a thousand different versions of, I feel like I've dated zero appealing men throughout the course of my life. So, And I'm sure that you've worked with people who've had a similar experience. And how do you explore that with them?
1: Yeah. First of all, I just have a lot of empathy for everyone's different dating experiences. Like yeah. I am married, but I say to my husband all the time how grateful I am for him because uh, some of people are like, oh, you work in the dating world. You must really wish that you were single and having fun. And I'm like, to be honest with you, I work in the dating world and I mostly am confronted by people's dating problems. And it makes yeah. me feel grateful that I have found someone. And so just like if I were talking to one of your female friends who said that, I'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's really hard out there and let's figure out what's going on. And so cool. imagine, if I imagine I was speaking to a friend, I would break it down into all the different pieces. So I would want to understand how long have you been dating? What mm. type of people have you dated? Do you tend to meet them online? Do you tend to meet them in person? Let's talk about your attachment style. Are you anxiously attached? And you tend to really go after people who are avoidant attached and then give you mixed signals and there's the feeling of a chase and then they, they let you down. Are you actually avoidant and attached and you, it's hard for you to get close to someone? Do you have a so-called type that actually isn't making you happy at all and you should switch the type of person you go after? And so yeah. there really is like an individual sense of what's holding that person back. But mm-hmm. I do encounter a lot of people who say things like, if I meet a hundred people, I'm only attracted to four of them, and then only two of them are attracted to me, and so I only have a two out of a hundred chance of ever even going out with someone and I'll never find someone. And so everyone really has a story of "I live in the hardest city for dating, or it never works out for me." And so of course, it's an individual experience, but I think that there are universal trends, and so I really try to break down with the person, what's going on for you that's preventing you from making these connections and finding great people.
0: If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast that's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast. But while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice complement to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, The Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off, oneskin.co, with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. Part of what you're speaking to here is a tendency that we have to externalize our problems, essentially, Mm -hmm. which is really understandable. And I I don't want to devalue that. I'm not trying to tell somebody that if they haven't found a great romantic partner yet, that's because of something that's deeply wrong with them. Like, that's not the communication that I'm making here. But I do think that there's a natural tendency to be like, well, people out in the world are fill in the blank, a pain in the butt. They're not reliable. They're annoying. They've got all these problems and so on. But You know, humans are humans. We've all got our faults. And part of it is learning how to deal with the things that you can live with and then deciding on the things you can't live with and having a certain pragmatic viewpoint, particularly once you get to a certain part in your search. As you were saying, once you pass that benchmark person, looking back and going, okay, what's realistic if I do want to find a long term partner?
1: I'm really glad you brought this up because it's certainly something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And even Mm. I finished writing my book around two years ago. And since then we've had the pandemic. I have gone through a ton of stuff with my partner. I have worked mm-hmm. at Hinge and seen the data from millions of different daters. And so there's some things from the book that I feel like I have an even updated view on. And so one of them is, I really sure. like what you said it about people externalizing their problems. And so I can give you an example of something that happened lately that I thought was so interesting, where I have this guy friend and he's always telling me, okay, like I know exactly what I want. I want a woman who's uh, over five, seven, who's skinny, who has red hair. And I just have to (laughs) find her. And he would tell me like all his strategies (laughs) for meeting her. And, oh, maybe I should put up a billboard and maybe I should do this. And how do I increase my top of funnel? It was extremely focused on locating this person. So over the years, I've been helping him so that he has a more open-minded view of who, who he can date. And he's no longer focused on this skinny five, seven redhead even then it's always like, I just haven't met her yet. And so recently I had the opportunity to set him up with someone who came extremely highly recommended, beautiful, tall, all these things that he said he cared about, just like they had a lot in common, just seemed like it'd be a great match. And so I set him up with her and they went on the date and he told me that the phone date went really well. And then he told me after that, that, um, the in-person date didn't go as well. And so I was able to connect with this woman and find out what happened. And it turned out that he was a horrible dater. He was showing up and asking her all these questions as if they were written on an index card. An interview. You know, things yeah. like, when's the last time that you stepped outside your comfort zone? And what is your five-year plan? And it was so interesting because he's extremely focused on how he just hasn't met the right person. And I'm like, dude, you need to work on yourself. You need to become a better dater. You need to become the right person. And so Now I've really been thinking so much about all these ways that we blame other people. Oh, it's my city. Oh, it's the dating apps are filtering me out. Oh, you know, it's this and that when it's like, well, how are you showing up and what are your skills? And maybe you're the common denominator in all these things going wrong.
0: Yeah, connected to that, I can't remember where I heard this, but it's something along the lines of one of the most difficult things to face is everything you ever wanted. Because a lot of the time, people have this story, which is the story you're describing, the tall, skinny, beautiful redhead, and if I just find her, then bam, that'll be it, and it'll be off to the races. But the truth is that you actually encounter the idealized object, which is no longer a person, you've totally objectified them, you've just turned them into a container, and you have that experience of like, wait, I got everything I ever wanted, and yet I am still not fulfilled by this. And that's a dark night of the soul moment if I've ever heard one. Like That is a moment for some serious introspection. And I think that it just speaks to the ways in which we create stories that protect us from the experiences that we don't want to face. Like We we create a story about, oh, I just haven't found this person because internally there's a fear around fill in the blank, around connection, attachment, whatever it might be. And that story protects us a little bit from actually having to face that in a really focused way or having to do the internal exploration necessary. Or getting vulnerable inside of a deep connection with somebody else, which for many understandable reasons can be like very difficult for people.
1: Yeah, I think that's really well said, and I, I have mm. seen different versions of that, so Sometimes it's that the vision of their head of who they should be with doesn't exist. And so they literally never meet that person. Yeah. Sometimes they meet that person and then they realize that they're not as happy as they thought they would be. And so they make up a reason and they say, oh, well, I thought I actually wanted somebody who was really ambitious, but then they're not going to have time to raise a family with me. So I want this, but more domestic. And sometimes it's an avoidant attachment style where they yeah. basically make up an excuse to remove themselves from that person. And so I have an example of my book of someone who would always find an excuse. Oh, she pronounces the word picture as pitcher. And I just could <laughs> never be with someone like that, right? We, we call these things um, deal breakers when they're pet peeves. A woman in my dating mm. class said to me on Monday, it's a deal breaker if somebody puts on their profile that they like sapiosexuals. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of pretentious when people say that. But in what world is that a deal breaker? Like, that's sure. a preference. You would prefer that they not say that. But you're telling me that if you met someone at a party and you were attracted to them and had a great conversation with them and you were about to go on a date with them and then you found out that on their profile, which you haven't seen, they say sapiosexual. I was like, of course, you'd still go out with them. And so for a lot of us, of yes, it's this fear of connection. It's this fear of settling. It's this fear of, well, I've waited long enough, so that person I end up with better be perfect, and it really Mm. prevents us from finding that relationship.
0: So we have one more big group of tendencies here, and that's the hesitator, and I would love to talk about that one a little bit.
1: Yeah, so as I mentioned, I had not worked with a ton of hesitators before my book came out. I certainly had friends like this, Mm -hmm. and I was aware of them, but these are the people least likely to hire a dating coach. And then since the pandemic, mm. this population has exploded because so many people said things to themselves like, oh, I'll I'll date once the pandemic's over. I'll date once there's a vaccine. I'll date when Omicron ends. And there was always this feeling of I'll date when this, and it would never happen. And so for the hesitator, my big intervention for them is one, helping them understand that there's no such thing as being a hundred percent ready. And so if they think, well, I met the love of my life tomorrow, she would reject me because I'm not perfect yet. And so let me wait, fix myself, and then meet her. And I really have the opposite view, which is if you don't practice and get better and learn how to be in conversation and learn how to express your needs and communicate and build foundations of trust, then when you do find that great person, you won't be prepared because you prepare by dating and being in relationships. And so it's sort of like stand up comedy where if you Mm. just are at home writing jokes, that's just writing. It's not until you're in front of an audience that you're doing stand-up. And so with dating, if you sit at home reading the book attached and changing the profile pictures on your hinge app, but not actually going out with anyone, then you're not getting better at dating. And so for them, it's about setting a deadline, having accountability and saying, I'm not going to be the perfect, most charming dater from the beginning, but Let me get better by practicing and figuring out what Mm. kind of person I want to be with long-term.
0: And there, I have to imagine that a fair amount of that tendency, the hesitator tendency, gets back to self-esteem, self-worth, seeing yourself as a legitimate person as you are right now, as opposed to just the aspirational aspects of our personality, which, of course, you know, we have a personal growth podcast. We're very there for self-improvement and personal actualization and all of that beautiful stuff. But at the same time, if you're always shooting for an idealized version of yourself, you're going to be disappointed most of the time.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so a lot of the advice that I give to hesitators is like, I get that you want to be in therapy. I get that you have self-love stuff that you're working on that you need to feel worthy. You Mm -hmm. can do that in parallel with dating. Go to your therapist, work on what's going on for you, heal those wounds while dating. It is not a it, you know, and therapy is often a lifelong pursuit of 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 self-knowledge and self-growth. It's not like, okay, you graduated from therapy. And actually this is something that I'm really passionate about and that I just did research on for Hinge and we found some really interesting findings that Mental health and talking about therapy had once been stigmatized. And over the last few years, especially with the pandemic and how hard it was for people, mental health has gone from being something that was a stigma to talking about to something that's considered basically a must have in dating. And so over 90% of people say that they want to date someone who prioritizes their mental health. And a similar amount of people say, if you tell me on the first date that you're in therapy, I'm actually more likely to go on a second date with you.
0: That's really cool. Yeah, no, and it's great to get the data on that because it's definitely validated by my individual experience. But I run a mental health podcast, you know. I'm probably bumping into a disproportionate population of people who are really open to therapy and have really received that message in a different sort of way since the pandemic started. But it's great to get some additional validation on that for just on the science side of things.
1: Yeah, and that's even more true with Gen Z. I think. I'm doing a lot of research into Gen Z dating and they tend to be really open to talking about things like mental health struggles. They are notoriously a very anxious generation. And so as much as that brings struggles, it also means that they want to date someone who they can talk to about what's going on for them. And they want to talk to someone who's doing the work and has dealt with their stuff from their family. And so there really is a even in the last few years, just a huge increase in the fact that people are valuing somebody that does self-growth, self-help, all of that, as opposed to saying, oh, that's weird or what's wrong with you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And I don't know if this is a little detour, but it's something that's just coming up for me as we're having this whole conversation. I could totally understand somebody listening right now and hearing us talk about dating in a certain kind of way where we're talking about it in this sort of analytical, process-oriented, very functional, very data-driven, again, very on-brand for me on the podcast, but I love it. nonetheless, yeah, is just like a way of engaging with these topics. And I could imagine somebody saying something along the lines of, wow, you know, this is, this is great informationally, but I'm getting a little worn down emotionally about the whole thing, because I am that person who feels like there needs to be a special sort of spark. Or I am somebody who really wants to have that heavy romance dynamic inside of a relationship that I pursue. And so there's this balance, right, between being really informed by these good practices and the good data and the good science while also searching for this ephemeral thing that we call love with somebody else. And so I'm just wondering, because you're somebody who has such an analytical orientation around it and such a data-driven orientation – Uh, Maybe I'm asking, like in your own life, are there ways in which you've you've found an appreciation for the romance aspect? Or are there people who come in excessively analytical with that very maximizer tendency where you need to help them find their way towards the more romantic notions a little bit?
1: Yeah, I I, I so appreciate the question. And I definitely have been navigating this over the past few years where I no longer really read the comments on articles, but I definitely remember early on someone's like, Who's this behavioral scientist taking the romance out of love? And why is she applying all these analytical part? And I feel very strongly that I'm like, you know what's romantic? What's romantic is finding an amazing partner and building a life (laughs) together and having sex that's passionate after 10 years and being there for each other through thick and thin. Who cares how you met? Who cares if you had to go to therapy to overcome your anxious attachment style to get into it? What really is romantic is finding your person and building this life together. And so it's not that I'm saying that life needs to be without emotions. I would actually say I'm a very sensitive, emotional person. It's more that I feel like what I can add to this conversation is this framework or this pattern recognition saying like, I'm talking to hundreds of people and I've seen data from millions of singles. And what's happening is these trends. And I'm basically Mm. identifying the trends, helping people spot them, and then giving them tools to overcome them. But the end result, getting into a great relationship, building a life with someone, that is the same regardless if you met through a matchmaker or a neighbor or someone at work or through a dating app with my help on your profile. And so really it's like the romance part is the beautiful relationship what I'm really doing is helping people get out of their own way so that they can get into that relationship.
0: Totally love that framing. I think that's a great way to talk about it. And connected to that, one of the things that's been helpful for me and certainly helpful for me if I ever have conversations with people about this sort of stuff is just the realization that the overwhelming majority of your time spent with another person is going to be spent doing completely non-romantic things. It's going to be spent doing the boring day to day, washing the dishes and picking the kids up if you're into having kids and dealing with doing the taxes, dealing with life, getting from point A to point B. And so the question is about like finding somebody who makes those processes enjoyable to be around for starters. Like that is a major bonus inside of a relationship. And then still having the romance aspect of it, but 95% of your time is probably spent being pretty unromantic around this person.
1: Yeah, I I really like how you brought that up. And I can tell you my view on it, which is that, yes, a lot of life is doing the dishes, discussing who's going to drop each other off at the subway, talking about what you're going to eat for dinner. A lot of it is just the day-to-day parts of life and that romantic getaway or that, you know, passionate night. Those are a smaller percentage of the time that you spend together. And so if you think about most of life as these in the weeds moments, how can you have that be enjoyable? How can you make the other person feel seen and supported? How can you steal those moments of intimacy and appreciation? And so really my whole framework on this comes from the work of the Gottman's and really, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but the concept of bids. And so basically what they say is that when they analyze the relationship masters, the people who really have strong relationships over time, compared to the relationship disasters, the people who break up or together unhappily, it's about in these micro moments, making bids, which are verbal or nonverbal attempts to connect. And so kissing somebody on the shoulder Or kissing somebody on the cheek or squeezing their hand or saying, hey, I just read this article. Have you heard about this? And then having your partner turn towards that bid. And so having them say, oh, I haven't heard about it. Tell me more. Or even when you walk in the door saying, hey, how was your day? And looking up from your laptop or putting down your phone. And that it's really about in these moments, recognizing the bids and turning towards them. And that that's far more impactful on the relationship than you know whether or not you're planning an annual trip to Hawaii. And so Mm. after learning from the Gottmans and studying their trainings and doing events with them, I have really tried to embody this in my own life. And so, for example, this morning, my husband and I both set alarms and he had a busy meeting to go to and I had to get dressed, but I just really took time to be silly with him and to just invest in the moment. And he absolutely turned towards my bid and was silly back. And before I knew this research, sometimes I would just be so focused on my work and my goals that when he walked in the door, I'd be like, yeah, 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 hi. Like I'm in the middle of things. And now I'm like, no, like I am literally working on investing in dating relationships. I need to prioritize my relationship and I will absolutely take the time to put my laptop down, stand up, say, hey, do you want to go for a walk? And so really thinking about it as, relationships are daily investments and taking small actions often, they're not about the grand gestures. Because by the time that you do the grand gesture, you already might have built up so much detachment and resentment that it's hard to overcome that.
0: I just think that this is the whole game changer in terms of having a functional relationship outside of the obvious stuff, but, you know, good communication yeah, skills, compatibility sure. on various levels, so on and so on and so on. But in terms of behaviorally, the single biggest difference that I've seen in relationships that work out versus ones that don't is the presence of these bits, these little warm moments of connection between you and your partner. And you can often see it in your friends, you know, who are the partnerships that you're around, where there's this little extra moment where she puts a little hand on his shoulder. They You know, have a little interaction where they smile at each other from across a room, just like these tiny little micro moments. And you just see it in people who do it and you see it in people who don't. And at least in my experience, it's often extremely predictive. So, kind of connected to that, what are some other things that people tend to underestimate the importance of inside of their relationships?
1: Yeah. So, one of the chapters that I really enjoyed writing is this chapter about what matters more and less than we think for long term relationships. And I came up with this idea of the prom date versus the life partner. And Mm. so, If you think about going to prom, you know, who are you looking for? Probably someone who would look good in pictures, who was cute, who maybe you want to kiss at the end of the night, who would dance the night away with you. You're not thinking about, are they going to pick up my kids from the dentist? Are they reliable? Would I want to talk to them for a 10-hour flight, right? And so as you're moving to a different stage of looking for a long-term partner, you have to shift what you're looking for away from the prom date. And so we talked about the things that matter less than people think, like looks, money, similar personalities, and shared hobbies. Some of the things that matter more than people tend to think are things like kindness, loyalty, emotional stability, the ability to make hard decisions together, the ability Mm. to fight well, and what's really become the most important one to me, but what side of you the person brings out.
0: Sorry, you said something there that just really stuck out to me. What does fighting well look like?
1: Yeah, I specifically like to say fighting well instead of not fighting. Sometimes people will say something to me like, oh, I met this guy and we don't fight at all. And I'm like, you don't fight. You also not have sex. You know, you have to have (laughs) these moments of friction. You have to have these moments of passion. And so it's not about not fighting. And speaking of the Gottmans, they have found that around 69% of problems in relationships are perpetual. And so that means that they will never Mm. be solved. And so if I'm an early person that gets to the airport hours early and you're a late person that never wants to sit at the gate and just wants to run onto the plane, we are probably not going to convince each other of the other's view. And instead we need to find a compromise. Like maybe we go to the airport separately. And so fighting well is the ability to get your point across, give feedback without contempt, without criticism and really be able after the fight to have that repair moment where you laugh or hug or basically remind each other that you're safe and that nobody's leaving.
0: You entirely just described my relationship with my partner there, by the way. I am a chronic, I will budget the exact amount of time necessary for me to get from point A to point B person. And and she is a chronic, I want to be there at least an hour and a half (laughs) early if we're getting onto a plane kind of person. And you need to navigate that inside of your relationship. And- to your point about the the research from the Gottmans, it's become a perpetual argument for us. Yeah. But we've reframed it as not actually an argument. Mm-hmm. It's a playful thing that we do with each other around, oh, okay, she wants to get here early. We're going to set the alarm. We're going to mm-hmm. kind of do it her way. And then she pokes fun at me for my tendencies. Yeah. I poke fun at her. But there's a loving framework around it. We're yes. doing it out of a sense of exchange and play, as opposed to a, I am so frustrated about this trait that you have.
1: I think that's lovely. Right. Because at the end of the day, unless you're traveling all the time and you're constantly getting frustrated, you can just say, this is a difference of opinion. And I think it's charming that you're an early person. And I hope that you also think it's charming that I'm not. And we can absolutely design a relationship in which we have differences of opinion here. It's not about convincing the other person to adopt your style. It's about designing a lifestyle where you can have differences on those topics.
0: Yeah. And when you were giving that list of the traits that people tend to underestimate, you closed it by saying the aspects of you that are brought out by your partner, which does seem like such a fundamental thing. And we all have a basic sense of what that kind of looks like. We have phrases of, I'm this kind of a person when I'm around you, or I'm not this kind of a person when I'm around that other person. Uh, But would you mind describing how that tends to show up for people practically inside of their relationships?
1: Yeah, so this is something that I developed for the book and I've even been thinking about more lately. I had a friend, I think yesterday, who texted me and said, I'm trying to figure out who I should be with. And my friend said to rank each of these things one to ten, you know, looks, kindness, passion, ambition, like a bunch of things. And he was like, Isn't that clever? Like, I ranked each of these one to ten to know how important they are. And I was like, I've kind of moved away from that. I was like, I'm really not into like who is that person on paper. What's their bio? What are their resume qualities? Because you could meet someone exactly like this and really not like them. And you could meet someone the opposite and really like them. And that you just can't tell what side of you is going to come out until you're with someone. And that's why I really like this idea of like meeting on the app, getting to the date quickly and saying, who am I around you? Because sometimes the person who looks perfect on paper, something about them triggers you. You feel competitive, you feel jealous, you feel depressed, you feel de-energized. And so it's really about what emerges between you when you're together and not who each of you is separately on paper.
0: So we've named apps a lot during the course of this conversation, which makes sense. You work for an app company, you're heavily involved inside of that space. And- My own view is that apps have done a lot of good things and a lot of probably problematic things in terms of the consequences that they've had for what people look for, a major one of them being what you've said a few times here, which is just the focus on the initial profile picture. You're swiping through a thing. Most of the time, people see a picture and they're making 90% of their decision based off of that picture. What do you think people can do to use apps in smarter and more effective ways rather than getting kind of captured by their pitfalls?
1: Yes. So... There's great research from Michael Rosenfeld out of Stanford that analyzes how people are meeting, how, how couples who are in happy relationships meet. And even before the pandemic meeting online was the number one way. And I'm sure that that's just gone way up during the pandemic. And so for people who say, I just don't want to use apps or not romantic or they're not for me, it's like, you're missing out on the way that most people are meeting these days. And so I feel like. It doesn't prevent you from meeting people in real life, but it should be part of your mixture because it's just a really great way to meet a bunch of people, to get your reps in. And so in general, I would say that this should be part of somebody's dating diet. In terms of using it to your advantage, it's really about looking at people's profiles and understanding what you can and can't figure out. So you could understand, all right, do I like their pictures? When I message with them, can we banter back and forth? Do we have anything in common? But you can't tell if you have chemistry. We did research on this at Hinge. Chemistry is something that's based on a synchronous conversation. And so you need to be on Mm -hmm. the phone, on a video chat, in person, to really see what side of me do you bring out and do we have chemistry. And so in general, I would think about dating apps as a way to get off the app and onto a date and not focus too much on, well, I like nine out of 10 things about them, but I just don't know if this one thing about them is something I can overcome, so I'll swipe left. If you actually are more humble about it and say, there are things I can figure out through an app and things I can't, then I would actually just encourage you to get curious instead of make assumptions and just ask the person for the thing that you need more information about.
0: That's really great. And connected to that, is there a single piece of advice that you find yourself returning to again and again with the people that you work with?
1: Yeah, for people that I work with, one of the biggest things I say to them is throw out the checklist, forget about your type, and really stop focusing so much on the spark. And so really Mm. focusing on showing up with an open mindset, willing to say, yes, it hasn't worked on the past 50 dates, but that doesn't mean that it can't work this time. And really being able to tune into, how do I feel around this person? Am I energized? How does my body feel? Am I laughing? And stop evaluating them against some rubric in your head and really focus on the fact that people can surprise you and perhaps your so-called type isn't what's gonna make you happiest long-term. And that when you start dating someone who's not your type, That might be the one that really works out.
0: I love that. And I think that it's a great note to kind of wrap up our conversation here on. So Logan, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. I really enjoyed this.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Such good questions. I really appreciate your perspective. I learned a lot from the way that you phrase things. Like I loved how you talked about externalizing problems and I just appreciate your level of rigor and research.
0: Oh, thank you, Logan. That honestly means a lot to me. Thanks.
1: Yeah. Great questions.
0: Today, I had a great time talking with Logan Yuri. She's the author of How to Not Die Alone and the director of relationship science at the dating app Hinge. We began by talking about why so many people find it so challenging to date these days. And we applied a little historical context to our conversation. The truth is that our modern notions around dating, including ones like, hey, marrying for love, are pretty, well, modern hunter-gatherers really didn't need to worry about whether or not they were dating or just hooking up or if they were looking for something more meaningful in their lives. And before the last 100 or 150 years or so, the whole idea of seeing somebody because you really like them as opposed to because there's some business incentive for ending up partnered to them really wouldn't have come up at all. Marrying for love is a pretty new idea And while it's a really wonderful idea, it's also one that's complicated our pursuit of a life partner. We then framed a lot of our conversation around these three big bundles of dating tendencies that Logan outlined in her book. They are the romanticizer, the hesitator, and the maximizer. Romanticizers, as you might imagine hearing the name, tend to have a overly romantic notion of relationships. They're looking for the spark, they're on a journey to find the one, And they're really pretty put off by the very logical, process-driven, spreadsheet-oriented approach that we often took throughout this conversation. So if that really bothered you, you might be a romanticizer. Then there's the maximizer. This is the person who is looking for the perfect match. They want a little fairy dust from this person and a little something else from this person, and they want to put them in a blender and come out with a perfect partner. We didn't talk about it during the conversation, but I have to imagine that maximizers have a pretty strong, grass-is-always-greener tendency. Then there is the hesitator. As it says right there in the name, this person hesitates to enter the dating arena or get into a relationship at all, often driven by an underlying feeling that, well, I'll start dating when I'm more fill-in-the-blank. We then spent some time outlining some of the various ways that people who fall into each of these categories can overcome those underlying tendencies. One of the things that came up frequently during the conversation is what people tend to overestimate and underestimate the importance of. And these probably fall into the categories that you'd expect. Many people, particularly these days with a very app-driven approach to dating often, tend to overestimate the importance of, hey, how attractive is my partner, particularly how physically attractive are they? Then people also tend to overestimate the importance of similarity, shared hobbies, similar personalities, similar orientations toward the world as a whole. And then alongside that, they tend to underestimate the importance of emotional stability, of kindness, of having a growth mindset, and two other things that Logan emphasized, having a personality that brings the best out of you, and then the ability to fight well everyone is going to have disagreements with their partner. Conflict in relationships is pretty much inevitable. And there are even forms of conflict in a relationship that people sometimes really like that can bring partners closer together. And it can actually be a little bit of a yellow or even a red flag in a relationship if there is never any conflict of any kind, because that often means that people are suppressing various communications communications that they might want to really, in their heart of hearts, make to their partner, communications that could actually improve the quality of the relationship overall if they were made. So most of the time, the question isn't, do you have conflict? Because most people do. The question is, are you navigating that conflict with your partner well? We also had a pretty extended conversation about settling and about when you should start looking for a long-term partner, and how you should determine whether or not somebody is good enough to be that person for you. I think it's easy for a conversation like this to sound a little sterile, to have such a analytically driven approach to a topic that is filled with mystery and wonder and the unique chemistry that exists between two different people. So I want to be really clear. These tools that we're offering are not ways to remove that. They're ways to actually accentuate that and get you in a relationship with somebody that you can find that mystery and that wonder with. If you enjoyed hearing from Logan on the podcast today, you can find her through her newsletter, through her social media channels, and of course, you can read her book. I've included links to all of those in the description of today's podcast. She also has her Love Smarter coaching program. These are live application-only classes where she works with a variety of people. I've also included a link to that. In the description of the podcast today. If you've been enjoying the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. And hey, you could also tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways we have to reach new people. If you want to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.